If you have your Bible or phone or tablet, I'd like you to turn, please, to Mark chapter 15. We're continuing in Mark 15 this morning. And we've reached the climax, the high point of Mark's gospel in this section. We have the crucifixion and the resurrection taking place in 15 and 16. Uh, as a review, the theme that we've talked about so many times already, but I want to keep it in front of you, the theme of this book, the Gospel of Mark, is that Jesus is the suffering servant. That's from Mark 10, 34. And we've been looking at the call and the cost of being his disciple. He calls us, and there is a cost to it. And we saw that with Peter a couple weeks ago, and we'll see it more today, the cost of being his disciple. Last week, we dealt with the civil trial, the government trial before Pilate. And Jesus there was in another improper trial. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong, nothing to accuse Jesus of because there was nothing. And yet he still caved in to the pressure of the people and turned Jesus over to be crucified. And this week we reach the point of the crucifixion itself. Hopefully you've had a chance to find your place. I'd invite you to stand please with me and I'm going to read out loud. I'd like you to follow along. This is Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 32. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine with murder drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And we'll stop there for today. Would you pray with me, please? Our Lord and God, how good you are. How wonderful is your love to us. And we see it manifested. We see it so clearly as we read about your death and your resurrection. Father, what you suffered for us, what you did in order to give us a relationship with you, to give us a right standing that we could enjoy eternal life with you. And Lord, as we stand on this holy ground this morning and study this passage of your crucifixion, we ask that you would give us understanding. In some ways, it is so familiar to us. 
And yet, Lord, may it not get old. May we not be bored with this information, but may we be awestruck by what you have done. Lord, in many ways, this is beyond our comprehension that you, God, would become man and would die and would sacrifice yourself, would sacrifice your son in our place. But Lord, we ask that you would make it real and make it clear to us. Holy Spirit, I ask for your help to anoint me to preach your word with clarity and power this morning. And I pray for each one here, each one joining us online, that you would give understanding, that we would rejoice in that understanding, that as you show us your word, that we would not be merely hearers, but that we would be doers, that we would do what you show us to do in response to studying your word together this morning. We look forward and expect what you're going to do. We expect you to do great things because your, your word does not return void to you. So have your way in us and in this service right now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the second part of this section on the king of the Jews. That is the key phrase. That is the title for today, the king of the Jews, part two. And the question that I would like each person to ask him or herself is very simple. How has the cross of Jesus Christ affected you? How has it affected you? Think about that this morning. Three main ideas. Number one, Jesus' cross intersects our lives. I'm going to see that in this first section, particularly in verse 21. Number two, Jesus' cross causes offense. And we're going to see that in the second half of this section, verses 29 to 32. But we're going to finish today with a parallel passage over in Luke because we're going to see that Jesus' cross offers hope. I felt as I looked at this chapter and, and tried to figure out where to start and stop so that it would not be an ex extremely long sermon, we're breaking it up. Parts of the crucifixion the suffering and then the crucifixion and then his death it'll be over three weeks so i didn't want to leave in a sense we will leave him on the cross when we finish today but there's hope and there's more to the story because he did not stay dead he died on that cross but he did not stay dead he came out of the tomb three days later so there is hope and we'll discuss that as well as we get toward the end but going back now to where i began reading a few minutes ago verse 21 and we might even read a verse or two before that we're going to talk about the fact that jesus cross intersects our lives he and his cross intersected the lives of four soldiers and a centurion we'll see more about him next week simon of cyrene that's where we begin today and then the two thieves and verse 20 is where we stopped last time i'm going to read it and when they had mocked him they took the purple off him. Remember, Pilate's soldiers had mocked him by putting some sort of probably hand-off purple garment, but to mock him as if he were a king because they didn't believe he was. They didn't know he was. They took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out. Why? To crucify him. They led him out. What does that mean? They were leading him out beyond the city gate. Jesus had to be crucified outside the city. That was both a Roman tradition and law. It was also a Jewish tradition. Some of you may know 
the passage in Hebrews 13 where it's written, for the bodies of those animals, talking about the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify, that he may set apart the people with his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. He was outside Jerusalem. And where we picked it up today, verse 21, then they, that would be the soldiers, compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his, that is Jesus' cross. So they compelled. That means that they forced this man into service. Under Roman law, a Roman soldier could order anyone to carry an object for up to a mile. And that person who got recruited for that task had two choices. Do it or die. So, of course, he would do it. Jesus alludes to this back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. That's what he was talking about. That soldier would put the flat side of his spear or his sword on your shoulder, and you were tapped to service. You were going to do it. And that's what happened with Simon. So who is this Simon, a Cyrenian? He was originally from a city named Cyrene, a port city in North Africa, which had a significant Jewish community. Jews from Cyrene had their own synagogue there in Jerusalem. We read about that in Acts 6. And some of them were present on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. What we don't know is where Simon lived. We know he's from Cyrene. As I've talked with many of you, many of you are from other places. A few of you may be from right here in the Cape Fear region. But we don't know whether he was from Cyrene and may have been traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. That seems quite possible. Or he may have lived in and around Jerusalem. We don't know. This may be the same man that is mentioned in Acts 13 in connection with the church at Antioch. Again, we aren't sure. But what's interesting is that Mark stops long enough. Mark doesn't mention that many people by name in his gospel. He stops to mention Simon and then says, hey, by the way, he's the dad of, and we have these two other men mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. So that clears it right up for us, right? Everybody know Alexander and Rufus? Well, no, we don't, but apparently the people who were going to read the gospel of Mark did. And we believe Mark was writing to people in and around Rome. If that's the case, then this may be the Rufus that Paul mentioned in Romans 16, 13, there at the church in Rome. It says that Simon was coming out of the country. It seems that he was coming into the city for the day. And many of the Passover visitors stayed outside the city for the night because the city was so packed. And that may be what was going on here. He may have been coming into the Jerusalem for that, or he may have lived outside the city and was coming in for the day. Regardless, he was coming in. And he gets drafted to bear Jesus' cross. Let's talk about that. A prisoner who was condemned to be crucified had to carry the cross beam of his cross. That weighed, various sources said different things, but it averaged out to about 100 pounds is what he was going to have to carry. He had to carry his own cross or cross beam to the place of execution. Now, according to John 19, 17, Jesus went out carrying his cross, but he must have been unable to continue at some point. Tradition says that he stumbled beneath its weight as he passed through the city gate. But however and wherever that occurred, a Roman soldier chose Simon, seemingly at random for the crowd, and forced him to carry Jesus' crossbeam 
the rest of the way. Now, this idea of carrying your cross is exactly what Jesus was talking about back in Mark chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. But one of those key passages where Jesus began to announce his crucifixion and his resurrection to his disciples, this is Mark 8, 34. Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I hope that sounds familiar if you've been here for our series in Mark. We talked about it. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is he saying? The call and cost of being a disciple. That's part of that theme. When you are called to be a follower of Christ, there is a cost, and the cost is to die. I don't mean literally, yet. That may come for some of us. It happens around the world every day, doesn't it? But we must die to our flesh. We must die to our will, ourself. That is what Jesus was calling his disciples to do, and he is living it out as their example and as ours. He went forth carrying his cross. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. So what is the point here that Jesus' cross intersects our lives? We don't know where Simon lived. We don't know what his plans were for that day. But I guarantee you one thing. When he got up that morning, he was not planning to carry anybody's cross. He may not have known who Jesus was. Doing so might cause people to think that he, Simon, was the one being condemned. Doing so would probably have caused him to come in contact with Jesus' blood. And you know what that meant? That meant he was unclean and would not be able to participate in the Passover. This was not Simon's plan. But it was God's plan. How do we respond when God changes the plan? Some of you may, may be like me. You like to plan things out and map things out. This is the way it's going to be. And then something else happens. And whew, God changed Simon's plan. When did Jesus' cross intersect your life? Maybe for some of you, today is that day. If you've never repented of your sin and believed on Jesus as Savior, you can do that today. Turn to him in faith. Call out to him, pray to him. Ask him to save you. If you're already his child, have you obeyed his command to take up your cross and follow him? What does that even mean? It means that we acknowledge him as king of our lives and do things his way. It means that we consider ourselves and our sinful flesh dead and that we're willing to endure whatever hardship and suffering that he requires of his followers. Here's how Paul put it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Going back to Mark 15, verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha, as I understand it, is an Aramaic word that comes from Hebrew, and it means a skull. He gives it to us there. Mark often translates things for us. The word we probably know better is Calvary, which is a Latin word. Do you know what that one word, word means? That means 
skull. Why? Well, Golgan and Calvary are describing the same location. It was a slightly elevated place, not a hill or a mountain, but it was slightly elevated outside the city gate, and somehow it looked like a skull. There is a place outside Jerusalem, it's actually inside Jerusalem today, where the, the boundary lines have been redrawn. And from what I understand, there is a bus stop at the bottom of that elevated spot. But it is hard rock, and it had cisterns that had been there when the road was cut through, so it made it look a little bit like a skull, that the eye sockets were where the cisterns had been. The place looked somehow like a skull, and that was the name that it had. Verse 23, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Wine mingled with, with myrrh. What's that all about? This was a sedative. This was offered to people before their execution to numb or deaden their pain. Now, you may think, well, why would the Roman soldiers be nice that way? Well, it could be that the Roman soldiers weren't the ones giving it to him. But it's also possible that they were, and it was to make their job easier. If they give the person who's being executed something to numb the pain, to calm him down, then he's not going to struggle as much against them, perhaps. Now, the substance they were offering, this narcotic substance, was appropriate. Why? Because Jesus was dying. He was being executed. Proverbs 31 says this, Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. There's a sense in which it would have been fully appropriate for Jesus to accept that, but he didn't. Why not? It says he did not take it. He refused to drink it because he deliberately bore the pain for you and for me. And what's more, he wanted to have his faculties about him. He wanted to be able to think and speak as clearly as he could during the crucifixion. Verse 24 says, and when, and in the context it really means after they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. The soldiers who were in charge of the execution got to claim anything that belonged to the one being executed. In Jesus' case, they rolled dice to see who would get his tunic. And this fulfilled prophecy in Psalm 22. I'm going to show you several verses in Psalm 22 as we go through today. This one is verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did the soldiers know that they were fulfilling prophecy? Not at all. But they were. You can study Psalm 22 on your own if you'd like to this week. We may do it as our scripture reading next week. But there's so much there that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write centuries before crucifixion existed. And it is a prophetic psalm about Jesus on the cross. Back here in Mark again, verse 25. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. The third hour means it was 9 a.m., which also happens to be the time of the morning sacrifice. And there he was crucified. Four words in English, three words in Greek, and they crucified him. This had been God's plan from the beginning. Revelation 13, 8 describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And what's interesting to me is that all four gospels, as they give 
the account of the crucifixion give us very limited details. We talked last week about the understatement, the restraint of what we read. Now, one reason for that may be that the original readers were so familiar with it. Remember, crucifixion wasn't discussed in polite company. It's execution. And it is a brutal, torturous form of execution. The soldiers stripped Jesus, either of all of his clothes or everything but his underwear, and drove spikes through the wrists and ankles to fasten him to the cross. And once he was suspended in that position, as we've talked about before, he had to pull himself up, push up on his ankles that are nailed, or pull up with his arms that are nailed. And it was painful. But that's what he had to do in order to breathe, because in this position, you can't breathe. And in order not to suffocate, he would have to pull himself up. Each of those seven sayings on the cross, he had to pull himself up to get the air in order to make the statement. And the executioners knew what they were doing. They would have the knees bent slightly to make it as difficult and as painful as possible. Every time he pulled himself up, his back, which we know was raw and bleeding from the scourging, was rubbing against that cross. You see, every part of this sounds like it hurt. That's because it did. If you've ever used the term or heard the term excruciating pain, that comes from the same word as cross, the same etymology. It's the same Latin word as crucify, the Latin root. And it means to torture. Literally, it means out of torment or out of crucifixion. That's what excruciating pain is. And that's what he was enduring in that moment. Now, here's that key phrase one more time. The king of the Jews. It's in verse 26. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. As we compare the Gospels, we learn that this inscription was in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. So anybody walking by could see it, could read it, could understand it. And when we combine the Gospel accounts, it seems like the entire plaque would have read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Why was it there? Because the condemned man, many sources say that he had to wear that around his neck going out to the place of execution, and then they would put it on the cross. This is part of the reason we believe that that traditional cross, sort of a lowercase t, is how Jesus was crucified, because there was a plaque, a sign above his head. And that was supposed to be the accusation against him. It doesn't sound like much of an accusation, does it? That's all that Pilate could come up with. He couldn't find anything else to write because Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. And we learn from John's gospel that he was also just making another dig at the religious leaders. Because we read there, in John 19, therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. That's the problem. It's not that he is the king of the Jews. He said he was. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Finally, when we get to that point in the story, Pilate shows some backbone and says, no. Verse 27, back in Mark, says that with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now that too is interesting, because we just read, oh yeah, there were robbers on the cross on either side of him. Robbery was not a capital offense. So we think, 
This is hard to, to be certain of, but we think these may have been others who were involved with Barabbas in the rebellion in which there were murders done. Remember Barabbas from last week and he was freed? He's described as a robber, but he, he or others with him had committed murder in a rebellion and Rome was stamping it out. That may be why these two were on either side of Jesus. Now what about that scripture which is fulfilled and it says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is a quotation from Isaiah 53, 12. The second part of that verse says, and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What's it saying? He was numbered with transgressors. He was there with transgressors, in this case, on either side of him. And he bore your sin and my sin. He bore the sin of many and he prayed for, he made intercession for the transgressors. That's the prophecy being fulfilled here. Now, that verse Verse 28 doesn't appear in some manuscripts of the Bible. And that's why, depending on what translation you have with you, with you, you may have it in brackets or you may not even have verse 28. You say, well, that's a problem. How do we know we have the word of God? Because it's biblical. I can't prove 100% one way or the other whether it belongs in there. Many of the older manuscripts don't have it. But it's very similar to the statement made over in Luke 22:37, a statement Jesus made to his disciples on the walk between the upper room and the garden and there he said, for I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. What will be accomplished? And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So please don't get bothered or hung up that, well, I don't know whether that verse belongs in Mark or not. It is biblical. It has a cross-reference. Two of them, really, Isaiah and Luke. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Now, last week, I pointed out that there were three groups that mocked Jesus. Not all of them appear in Mark, but as we get the parallel passages involved, one of them was the religious leaders during the trial before Caiaphas. That is in Mark, chapter 14, verse 65. Then, in Luke 23, we have Herod's soldiers. That's the second group. And then third, Pilate's soldiers, and that also is in Mark. We looked at it last week, verses 16 to 20 of this chapter. But now there were strangers passing by. There were strangers passing by and the religious leaders and they formed that fourth and final group that mocked Jesus. And this brings us to our second section for today, the second main point of Jesus' cross. It causes offense. What do you mean by that, Bob? Jesus' cross caused offense for strangers walking by and for the religious leaders. It still causes offense for many people today. Paul wrote about that. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. In other words, whether you're of Jewish descent or not, the cross causes offense, and it caused offense for these people here. Verse 29 says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, spoke against him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Wagging their heads, they're shaking their heads. Aha would be more like you might hear a kid on the playground, na 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 na. They're mocking him. That's what that aha would be. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Their mockery, these are just strangers passing by, but apparently they heard what had gone on in the trial before Caiaphas because they're making the same accusation. Remember, they kept trying to find false witnesses and they finally got two who sort of kind of agreed. It was about this. 
So they're saying, if you're so good, if you're able to do a miracle and tear down the temple and build it again in three days, then just save yourself. Come on down from the cross. Why is this happening? The first reason was to fulfill prophecy. Here's some more verses from Psalm 22. This is verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him and let him deliver him since he delights in him. The first reason they rejected was prophecy, but the second is that they had already rejected him as Messiah. He didn't meet their criteria. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And by this point, they had rejected him. They wanted to get rid of him because he was threatening their power, and he was being executed. And guess what? Being executed in this way by being hung on a tree was a curse. Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. He can't possibly be the Messiah. This is a stumbling block even for Jews today. That man could not have been the savior of the world. That couldn't have been the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, because he was crucified and God would never do that to his son. But he did. And so many stumble over that truth. Verse 31, likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. He had saved others. They couldn't deny that. They admitted that freely. In what ways? They had, he had saved others from various diseases and ailments, including leprosy, deafness, blindness. He had delivered others from demon possession. But he couldn't save us from sin if he had saved himself in that moment. He had to stay on the cross. They're saying, let the Christ. And they did, that was sarcastic. They didn't mean that. They say, the Messiah, the King of Israel, or King of the Jews, let him just come on down. Then we'll see and believe. If he had come down, he could not have saved them or us, and they still wouldn't have believed him. The problem in their heart was unbelief. They were rejecting the truth right in front of their eyes. I believe this temptation to save himself and come down the cross from the cross was a continuation of Satan's very first set of temptations. You remember he said, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything. That lie from Satan that we'll just do it another way. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. This will work just fine. And I believe he was tempted in that. That's what the cup and the prayers about the cup and the wrath were about in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then even here, while he's on the cross dying, I believe Satan is at work inspiring these religious officials. Just, just come on down. We'll believe you if you come down. But he couldn't. He had to die. He had to face that cup of wrath that we'll read about next time and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that brings us to the last sentence of verse 32. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I did not use the word revile in a sentence this last week. So what on earth does that word mean? It means to speak to someone or about someone in an insulting way, to insult someone, to revile. Peter wrote about that in his first epistle. In verse 22, it says, He, that's Christ, committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, talking about Jesus, who when he was reviled, that would be right now in in our passage, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not defend himself. He did not insult back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. More about Jesus in verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes, we, we read about those last week, by whose stripes, scourgings, beatings, we are healed. We're going to look, as we finish here, that Jesus' cross offers hope. Jesus' cross offered hope to, the, to one of the thieves, and it still offers us hope today. Because that last statement, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. They were mocking him. They were scorning him. They were insulting him. And at first, it was both of them. But one later repented. That means he changed his mind about Jesus. So you can turn there if you want. I'll have it on the screen. Luke 23, this is starting in verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, spoke against him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Seems like he was picking up on what he was hearing people below him say. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. How did he know that? Maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Maybe he had overheard. Because if they were being crucified together, they may have been around for one another's trials. So he recognized, we deserve to be here. We rebelled. We committed murder, perhaps. Whatever it is they had done, we are here getting our just desserts, the, true, the, the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, then he said to Jesus, so he rebuked the other guy, stop saying that. That's not true. He turned to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a simple prayer. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, truly, verily, certainly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All of us have mocked Jesus at times. May have done it verbally. Certainly we've done it by our disobedience. My question then is this. Have you repented? This thief didn't wait until he could get his life together. He was never baptized. He never joined a church. He never gave any money to God's kingdom. He never did even one good work after asking Jesus to save him, and yet he's in heaven. Why? Because he asked Jesus to save him. Because he recognized Jesus' righteousness and his own unrighteousness. 
We call it the great exchange. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place and died a horrendous death in our place so that we could have peace with God and eternal life in heaven. It wasn't too late for the dying thief. And if you're hearing me say these words today, it's not too late for you either. What do you have to do? Cry out to Jesus to save you. It wasn't the words he said. It wasn't the position he was standing in or kneeling in. He was crucified next to Jesus. He could do absolutely nothing about his past. He could do nothing about his future because there really wasn't one. All he could do was cast himself on the mercy of the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. How has the cross of Jesus Christ affected you? We've read about some ways it affected different people. We've seen that it intersected many lives, particularly Simon. That it causes offense for many people, particularly the religious leaders and the people passing by while he was on the cross. But we've seen that the cross offers hope, as it did for the one thief who was willing to change his mind and believe the truth about Jesus. If you have never put your faith in Jesus as the Savior today, would you do that? Would you pray to him? Would you call out to him? You can do it right at your seat, but you're going to talk to him. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Would you save me? And that means that you believe he can. He's God, he's the son of God, and he's the savior of the world. And if you believe in your heart and you speak those words, he saves. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He has provided that gift for us. We can receive it by faith. And you can do that right now. But I know that many of you have done that. How are you responding to Jesus' cross today? Does it affect your life on a daily basis? He is king. On his cross it said the king of the Jews. He is king. He is Lord. Do you recognize that in your own life? Do you think about that? Does he enter your mind as you're making decisions on a daily basis? He has called us to die to ourselves and to follow him. Are you doing that? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I don't know whether I'm a child of God. I don't know whether I've been saved. I don't know if there's been a time where my life and the cross have intersected and I'm concerned about it. If that describes you and you'd like me to pray for you, I'm not going to name you or call you out or make you do anything beyond this, do anything beyond this, but would you simply look up and make eye contact with me? And I'll remember you in prayer.
you can call out to Jesus right now. You can tell him, Jesus, I've sinned against you, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you save me? And he will. For those of you who've done that, is the Lord leading you to do something specific in response to what you've heard this morning? We are supposed to, if we're going to follow after him, take up our cross and follow him. That may require suffering. That may require changing something in our lives, stopping something, starting something. I don't know, but if he's speaking to you and you'd like me to remember you in prayer as I close, would you do the same? Would you look up long enough to make eye contact with me and then look back down? Our Father, you are so good and you're so kind. And you have given us these words today, words of conviction, words of sorrow, but words of hope. So, Lord, from the youngest child to the oldest adult in this room, I pray that we would have an understanding of your gospel truth. That we would believe in you alone for salvation. And, Lord, for those who are your followers, may we take seriously your call to discipleship. May we obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.